Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello and welcome, everybody. We are back with another episode of Life List, a birding podcast. I am George Armistead, and I am here with both Molly Brown and Alvaro Jaramillo. How's it going, guys? Hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. For the first time, we missed a week of the podcast, yeah. <laughs> but we're back. Yeah, it was bound to happen, but uh, there were good reasons, though. Yes, yeah, exactly. I got I got knocked down by the old COVID nineteen, which you may have heard about. Uh, it's a little uh, little uh, virus that's making the rounds. Um, and yeah, I you know I think uh, triple vaccinated or whatever, and was thinking, starting to get to the point here after two plus years where I was like, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not going to get this thing. Maybe I'm going to be like, maybe I'm going to come out the other side of this and, uh, and be all right. But man, uh, first, uh, our, my stepdaughter came, came down positive. She was kind of like feeling a little bit, not so great, but like not terrible. And then Kristen tested positive. Then I tested positive. And then I was like out of commission for like three, four days. And like totally out of commission and it's still not great for another three, four days after that. So, uh, happy to be up and running again now. Um, but yeah, not much fun. Hey, just, just, just wondering, this doesn't transmit through microphones and stuff, right? Cause no promises, man. Okay. All right. Cause no, no promises. No. Yeah. But, uh, so anyway, that was, uh, that was me last uh, week plus, but uh, what's going on with you guys? Alvaro Jaramillo, what have you been doing, man? Well, I, I have been contemplating COVID because it's becoming um, much more prevalent in in a lot of people I I kind of know that are multi-vaccinated. It's sort of, I keep thinking it's like the, um, it's finally hit the NPR crowd, you know? It's uh, a... <laughs> <laughs> the liberal bastions of of uh you know urban areas are 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 being uh hit at this point probably there's a really good explanation for for this the time since your last vaccination and letting um you know down your guard probably using mask less and so forth but you know i you know right now it seems to me it's you're probably safer going to those states that were black on the map you know half a year ago and, yeah. and uh, <laughs> there's something going on and I haven't actually weirdly enough s- seen it in the news that, that it's um, just that the rates are going up, but it seems like a, a certain subset of the North American population is suddenly. I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. It does. It seems like it, we were kind of talking before. I feel like it's, it's penetrating like my inner circle more. Obviously we got it here, but you know, lots, a lot of folks I know are getting it. And, uh, and I also, I know that they're, they're like the testing, I think before when everything was through, you know, PCR tests through the, the pharmacies and everything, they were probably much better able to keep track of it. Now everyone's testing at home and probably that data is not collected as much. I don't know, but, uh, it does seem like there's kind of a, a surge happening. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I, I guess I didn't answer your question about birds, but there you go. How about you, Molly? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I've been just catching some spring migration here. 
not been sick, although I, I'm like you guys. I, I know a lot of people who have been. Um, you were both out last week, and I wasn't prepared to do a solo episode of the podcast, so that, that's why that's why we're catching up now. But uh, yeah, I went up to Biggest Week for the weekend, um, which is a festival I've gone to several times over the past few years. It's a oh four four and a half hour drive from my house, so close enough that you know you can go up for a couple days, and it's not too big of a deal. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But doing that, otherwise, just catching spring migration at home, which I love to do. This is the time of year I'm birding the most around here. So having yeah. fun with that. Yeah, absolutely. Same thing around here. I felt like having missed that last week, it's really, it really, it really stings, you know. But luckily, the winds actually were not super favorable here for migration. So I feel like there's still birds moving. And in fact, uh, the last, four or five days, the, the birding in Philly, Philly's just been off the charts. It's just been all sorts of good stuff. There's this massive Arctic turn event that's happened, um, kind of in the Northeast here. And we caught some of that, uh, managed to see Arctic turns here in Philly. And then a local birder, Shane Murphy found this piping plover, which may be the first ever for the city of Philadelphia. Um, there were some old records from 1950. Not exactly clear where um, that that record is from in terms of the location, but certainly very close to the Philadelphia airport. But that was mm-hmm. amazing. And then an- another person found redneck phalarope. And today, actually, I got a hot, hot yardbird, Mississippi kite. Got right cruised uh, right through the yard. Uh, I got a hot tip because, oh, wow. yeah, several other folks were getting them in the city. And I was like, OK, uh, the to do list is going to have to wait. And uh, and so I camped out in the backyard and <laughs> kind of noticed this little hawk flight, flight trickling through stuff moving to the north, mostly off to my east of good ways. So I had to get the scope out and uh, start putting some eyeballs on these birds. But one of them was a nice, nice Mississippi kite. So that was pretty sweet. So one redneck phalarope. Is that what you <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> One redneck founder? Here we go. I was uh, weathered out on a on a research boat that thing that I can talk a little bit later about, but um there were all of these phalaropes, redneck phalaropes flying over as we were on the boat at dock in Monterey Bay. And I was thinking, I've never seen so many redneck phalaropes. And, you know, they're flying over our heads. And I thought, I, you know, once the work is done here, I'm going to go to the point, Point Pinos, and and go and, and see what's going on. And sure enough, there's a gang of, of people, um, sort of uh, main count being led by Brian Sullivan, who's sort of one of the friends, you know, our friends, and also one of the people who's sort of uh, been real um key in that in that watch and by by the end of the day and it was just a few hours three hundred and fifty thousand redneck phalaropes it is more than one i'll give you that yeah (laughs) through that spot and you know i'm i'm I'm, i only caught half the move so maybe 150 to one hundred seventy thousand. wow that's crazy yeah it was with oh other goodies you know franklin's gull sabin's gulls and you know um, Manx Shearwater, and 
Brian had a Cook's Petrol even. That oh, is wow. So windy. From shore. How often do people see those from shore? I mean, that that would have been the story um, from any other day, but this may be the, the highest number of redneck fowl ropes ever detected in one day in California. Hmm. So, so that became the story. Yeah, but like how, how often are Cook's Petrols seen from shore in California? That's, it can't be many times, right? Silch. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So, I mean, ev- all of that's amazing, but the Cook's Petrol from short part just kind of like really blows my mind, but that's awesome. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, th- you know, 350,000. Yeah. <laughs> ropes is actually more mind blowing, believe it or not, when you're, when you're there watching it. No, that's high volume birds. I always like a spectacle and that sounds like a proper spectacle. Yeah. 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 And all the locals were, were, you know, a lot of the locals were there and stuff. And I, I've been to that watch maybe once before. And it was sort of like, well, you picked a good day. You know, one of the the days that are going down in history. So I thought, oh, I got lucky this spring, you know, because I haven't done much other birding other than cruises. So um, <laughs> that was cool. But nice. I'm glad you saw one redneck Alvaro. I to be fair, I didn't even see that Alvaro, but it, it, it's oh, it's okay. one of uh, it's just one of the good birds that's been seen here uh, re- uh, recently. But and I've only seen redneck phalaropes once before, which is about this time last year here in Philly. But obviously, it, seen lots of them. Mind, I think yeah, I think it was Steve Howell has, is the one who said. I don't know if it's uh, an old. Uh, thing that people say, but every bird is rare somewhere. Yeah, it's all relative, you know. It's all relative. So one side of the ocean, you're you're seeing hundreds of thousands. The other side, you're seeing one, you know, inland, and it's a big deal. And that's that's cool to, to think. Every single bird that's in your backyard that's common is rare somewhere. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's one of the good reasons to travel. It's one of the good reasons to travel is so when you go home, the birds that are in your backyard, you can kind of appreciate them all the more. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, speaking of the backyard, Molly, what what have you been seeing in West Virginia? Uh, It's been a fairly slow year for migration from what I've experienced, actually. Yeah. Same Um, here. Yeah. A couple things that you usually don't see much that have been a little bit higher numbers. A lot of Philadelphia vireos over the past few days. Wow. Um, that's been fun. Yeah. And uh, Wilson's warblers seem like they're popping up in the state a little more than usual. Otherwise, um, not, not a whole lot to really talk about. I did chase a state bird that I've dipped on three years in a row, which is a flock of glossy ibis that were over on the Ohio river a couple weeks ago. And there were six, two years ago, there were two reported. Um, and I think that there were six last year too. And I am curious if it's the same group that's coming Ooh. through. And it was, a, this was farther North up the river than where they had been reported the past couple of years, but the same time of year. So that's been about it. Otherwise just seeing the, the expected birds through here. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Philadelphia Vireos, always nice to see. That is not a bird I get to see a whole lot of. So I'm going to have to uh, have to remedy that somehow. Uh, yeah. Despite the name, I've only seen it like once in Philadelphia. So, yeah. Let's rename it. <laughs> Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Suggest it. <laughs> so you did get out to see Arctic Turns though, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really wild. I mean, dozens of them. I think we're going to talk about this more soon, uh, this whole Arctic turn event, because it's unprecedented. Um, and I was I was talking about it the other day with Marshall Iliff. I think we're going to have on the show uh, soon. And uh, he's really sunk his teeth into this this whole event. Um, but yeah, nothing like it ever before. There was for as far as, you know, the Philly list is the thing that is my only real list that I care about aside from my yard list. And the only one that had been seen in the city that I can recall was back in Hurricane Irene in 2011. Uh, I don't think there's any other records prior to that. And now over the last three, four days, there's been a couple each day. And I managed to see one of them, uh, thankfully. So uh, pretty Pretty fascinating, pretty pretty fascinating event, and nice nice bird to see. Always, um, you know, well well regarded as one of the champions uh, of migration. Um, so pretty cool. Just uh, I guess these winds that have been going on um, out east. You know, I had friends uh, send out these photos um, of from Chincoteague of, of a crazy looking turn. You know, this is, uh, Helen Bellencan and, and, and Gary Smith who were out there and they're burning their sort of home patch in this turn. And I saw these photos and I'm like, Oh boy, I think that's like a white wing turn. And you know, oh I don't know if you ever get this thing where you, you see the photos and you think, well, that's so unlikely in, in Chincoteague in the spring and so forth. Well, you know, probably has been the first in many years in North America that I didn't, I almost like clued out on what the actual field marks were. <laughs> I had to sort of go through the whole thing. Okay, hold on. Isn't it like the white tail and the really gleaming white wings and the underwings and the orange leg? And I went through the whole thing and I said, that's a white wing turn. It turns out, you know, they found this white wing turn, big deal. And you, I guess you can fill us in more, George, on the status of that, but uh, I gather a whole bunch of people got to see it, including like some of the the big year birders yeah. were able to get get out there the next few days. Uh, beautiful, beautiful bird. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah. But it it's it's funny that something that's actually kind of like you know, even in a fo- photograph, I, I got the feeling of like being there, almost like f- helping to find the rare bird because I was thrown into that sort of yeah. You you got you to know, experience that disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. Disbelief, like going, hold on a second. You know, that's no, where was this photographed? You know, and then, and then boom. Uh, so there, that, yeah, that's a, and, and then maybe this would be amazing to you. I mentioned this to the, my colleagues here you know, that I was working with that day in, in Monterey, and they're like, where's Chincoteague? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know where Chincoteague is? I had to describe the whole the ponies. Is that, yeah. oh, I read that book? Misty the, the Pony. Ponies. Misty the Pony. Yeah, it's a classic <laughs> read. Yeah. I know. It's so funny. Yeah. Or some there's some places in the birding, you know, kind of culture that are just you don't have to explain. You might not even know exactly where it is, but you've heard of it. Yeah. Cape May, you know. Yeah, Chincoteague's a legendary one, yeah. Chincoteague. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I think uh, it's funny that kind of biologist types did not know where Chincoteague was. So. Yeah, <laughs> now it's such an interesting place. It's probably the best place on the East Coast. Just about to see Delmarva fox squirrels. Uh, it's uh, yeah. which is a, was an endangered uh, subspecies of fox squirrel, but they've actually 
they've delisted it. It's come back apparently quite a bit, although I don't know. I still don't see them very much aside from there and Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. But yeah, that place is really good. That Those turn pictures, I didn't actually, when I first saw those photos, I didn't realize that they had sent them to you and you'd been a part of that idea. I just saw it pop up uh, and I was like, and I think somebody was like, could this be a white wing turn? And I like l- opened the photos and I was like, oh my God. You're like, yeah, that is what that is. That's like a smack in your face, like beautiful image. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, you talk about the disbelief, you, you know, some of these things they, you think, well, what are the odds? It can't be, can't be the thing that I think it is. Cause that's just, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but sure enough, that's what it was. And man, it, they got beautiful images of that thing. And it didn't hang around, I think more than, I think it was there the next morning. And I think it was gone the day after that. But yeah, spring is, it's rare. Um, I believe there are a few other uh, spring records, but uh, this is a bird that shows up, um, I don't want to say semi-routinely. It's rare, but in Delaware, New Jersey. In pulses, right? Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah where it shows then it's gone for three four years yeah and they were suspected to even maybe be breeding someplace because there there's times when in delaware i think you could see three or four in a day even um like back in the 90s decades ago yeah it was was in the 90s yeah um but they like for a full decade there was multiple ones that would show up but always in late summer i don't think there were very many in spring and uh, so spring, you know, beautiful breeding adult in spring is a different story. That's pretty, pretty yeah. phenomenal. I I got to see one in spring in Ontario, believe it or not. Oh, wow. It's a long point. Yeah. I think it might be the only, one of the few Canadian records, but I didn't find it or anything, but, but I, I was there and saw it and I was like, whoa, look at that thing. Those marsh turns. I think black turns cool looking, you know? Yeah. Then you see that and you're like. Well, boy. Marsh Turns is a pretty great group of turns as turns go. They they're I like all turns, but Marsh Turns are pretty pretty nice. It's a nice group. And, and Molly, have you ever noticed that George really likes turns? Like he <laughs> often talks about turns. Like he's got like a whole turn I, thing. I got a real turn <laughs> fetish. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a fan. I mean, it's, that's 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 fine. That's fine. <laughs> Don't yuck my yum, man. I I like turns. He will say that. I like turns. I do. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm down with the turns, especially the juvies. They're so pretty. Yeah. Delicious. Delicious for the eyes. You're really sounding weird now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's habitual. (laughs) Nice. Well, uh, Molly, I'd be curious to hear because I know you went to the biggest week. What was that experience like? You just got back, what, a day or two ago, right? Yeah, we just uh, we just drove up Thursday night and came back Sunday night or left there Sunday night. So uh, just a couple of days of birding. But I, uh, if you haven't been to Biggest Week before, you've probably heard about it. Ohio claims it is the warbler capital of the world. And I, I think mm-hmm. that, that there's an argument to be made there for migration. So it's it's just a big stopover site where birds are dropping and feeding before they're crossing over the lakes. So it's an amazing spectacle. There are also, it's a, it's a spectacle of people who come to watch birds too, because there's a huge turnout of birders and photographers and just people who are interested in what's going on that 
come out and crowd these few areas that um, in a lot of cases are just a little bit of a mile or less of paths and come out to see birds. So it's all just very crazy. It's uh, it's a lot of hype <laughs> and uh, there's a lot going on. So it's also um, maybe oh, 30, 45 minutes from Toledo, but there's not a lot to uh, it's not really near a town or nearer a town than that. So I had booked a place to stay months ago because they fill up really quickly out there. And I finally had a rental that was in a good spot and you can easily be driving a lot to get from place to place. So I had that and was debating on going or not um, because I, I just haven't been around people a ton and I wasn't sure if I was <laughs> up for the crowds, but I did have a lot of friends there. So at last minute I thought, okay, we'll go up. So uh, Jimmy came with me. He had not been to Biggest Week before. He's been to a couple birding festivals with me now, but it's always really fun to go with him. He's been a birder for several years, but hasn't had the uh, been to those types of events much. So it's kind of a, a fresh perspective. And we were out and just walking the same boardwalk that's, you know, a mile or so just over and over again and checking out warblers and seeing people. And he stopped at one point and said, it, these are just people who really enjoy birds. He said, this isn't as crazy as chasing down the list and everything as the other festivals. These are just people who are happy to see a warbler hanging out in front of them. And I thought, yeah, it, it really is. Uh, so that's a really cool thing about that festival that I, I would say is pretty unique there too, that there's more people just flat out enjoying a bird, whether it's a yellow warbler or a morning or Connecticut or something more rare that's coming through. And, uh, and that was how we spent few days. It was really hot. Um, it can be really hot or really cold or anything in between there, but it was pretty hot. Um, kind of felt like summer for the first time, but we just went slow, looked at a, a lot of warblers. There was pretty good activity. We caught, I think, the last day of uh, Kirtland's warbler being around. So oh, that was going to be one of my questions yeah. is if you caught yeah. up. To see that. Yeah. It seems like it's kind of a rite of passage. It seems like if you're, a, if you're, a, if you go to biggest week, it's like, did you get a Kirtland's, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun. And yeah, you just have to look for the, the crowds and you'll know something cool is there. Um, it had been, I mean, I hadn't been up there since before the pandemic too. And I was really surprised that uh, how much damage had been done to the forest just from storms that have passed through over the past few years. Hmm. So a few spots that um, had just way less tree coverage than they had before there at the McGee Marsh Boardwalk, um, but especially at the Mommy Bay Boardwalk. So Mommy Bay is the, the main lodge that is a state park and where like the vendors are and the socials and keynotes and that kind of thing. And there's a boardwalk I really like there. I went there the first afternoon when it was hot and I said, okay, this will be under heavy trees and we'll, we'll be away from the crowds a little bit. But no, there were a, a lot more people than usual there and there were no trees <laughs> for the most part. Wow. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, I guess it's just how that, you know, marsh habitat is it makes sense it was just uh surprising to see such drastic changes in some places but overall it was really fun yeah it was it was good that's cool yeah it's, it strikes i've only been there in the fall actually i've never been to the festival mm. uh, but it does seem like it's sort of ephemeral in nature some of the the habitat there because it's kind of a wetland kind of a forest um and um yeah but it's not an area i know well i've actually done relatively little great lakes birding um and it i'd like to go at some point i've never been to the biggest week 
And as much as I would enjoy the birds, I'm sure, I think for me, the appeal would be the birdering, you know, to uh, the social aspect of and like seeing seeing everybody on the boardwalk, seeing people going crazy over these warblers, which I guess can be really close sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. To, you could reach out and touch them, you know, regularly as you're walking throughout the boardwalk on any given day. Yeah, it's very unique. I mean, it's the kind of place where if you uh, are, are just getting into birding or especially if you have like a, a spouse or a friend or something who's mildly interested or wants to check it out, it's amazing for that. You don't you truly don't need binoculars to see a lot of the things that are there. It's also going to set the bar really high for you if you're going to come home to, say, Appalachia and look in the treetops for uh, a spare warbler hanging around. Uh, but, yeah, it's really cool. And it's certainly world-class birdering and, mm-hmm. and watching for birders. You see everybody, um, although not, not as many people from uh, Europe or Africa or Asia as are usually there. Uh, there were several people like vendors and guides and whatnot from Central and South America who were able to make it, but there were a lot of people that I missed this year too. Yeah. No, oh, that's cool. That's cool. Al, have you ever been? I've only been there in the fall for Midwest uh, Birding Symposium. Yeah, so I've never done the spring. And I must say, if I was in that area in the spring, I'm on Team Point Peely. Oh you boy! Know, I grew up. I grew up. It's always the alternative, this guy. You know, I swear. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, sorry. I, I have to be honest. It's not that I wouldn't enjoy it, but I would feel like I was um, betraying Team betraying, Canada. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. betraying Team Canada because Point Peely. I, I grew up there. I mean, I, I would go there multiple times a spring, many years as I was. Uh, you know, sort of learning how to bird. And it's pretty fantastic. And and to me, even though in the recent years it's not the kind of place that people talk about like they used to, it's it's one of the world class known sites that used to be famous. Oh yeah. Learning. Yeah. I mean especially you know, like in the eighties, I feel like seventies, eighties, people yeah. really just you know, you'd hear about Peely yeah. all the time. Yeah. And you know, uh Peterson would go there, uh, sort of the names of those of the day. And then, you know, Alan Wormington, who used to live there, you know, for many years, found amazing things at Peely, not only the migration, but vagrants and, you know, watching at the tip for just weirdo things like Sabin skulls going by or whatever, you know, it's just, uh, it's just got a lot going for it in that it's not just the warblers, um, there's a lot of shorebird habitat as well as, you know, um, the lake itself can be quite, quite a, you know, a draw for gulls and things. And then, then the, what they used to call reverse migration or reorientation now is probably what we call it, you know, birds going back over the lake, over the point in the morning. That's really cool to see. So there's a lot that, you know, I, um, but it's, it's also a, a great people watching spot because a lot of folks go there, at least the Canadians. And we used to get a lot of people from the UK coming over as well. Um, Mm. But uh, I would love to see the biggest week and I will eventually, but I I would have to, you know, sort of apologize to the uh, birding authorities in Canada. Yeah. You'd have some explaining to do. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, you know what I could do? I could do both. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. These are not mutual. Yeah. (laughs) 
I had plans to do both the year the pandemic <laughs> yeah. hit. Yeah. And yeah, people drive up and catch it all. I think it'd be cool to just kind of circle the lakes and do that. Yeah, that's actually yeah. I, my friends, Bernie and Amy, that just left from Philly. They That's exactly what they're doing. They're going to the, the biggest week. And then from there, they're going on to PLE for another uh, uh, five five days. So pretty sweet circuit if you can manage cool. it. Yeah. Yeah. Last year, we drove up to Presque Isle for a weekend and birded that side in Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, it, it was good. It, it didn't compare to the Toledo side of the lake, in, in my opinion, or just when I caught it. But Peely, I, I hear a lot about. Yeah, I did that Presque Isle once as well, the, uh, the uh, Festival of Birds there. And I just loved that event. I would totally go back to uh, Presque Isle in the first week of May, I think it is. That's uh, that's another that's a sort of flying under the radar festival where they have a lot of space, a lot of birds, beautiful area too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a beautiful area. I forgot to say, somebody mentioned I introduced myself to someone, and he said, "Yeah, I, I recognize your voice from the podcast." Nice. <laughs> And I said, is it my accent? So shout out to James. Yeah, it was crazy. We went out to dinner and I was meeting people and somebody listens to this thing. Nice. (laughs) That might have been my highlight of the trip, if I'm being serious. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I've had sort of situations where people just the other day, somebody that said, Hey, I listen to your podcast. It's really great. And I'm like, what you listen? You know, like it's so <laughs> so wild. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, yeah, thank you very much. We need to get some uh, some caps or t shirts or something soon. I, yeah, I was really. thinking that when I was on the boardwalk. I need a a lifeless something. Yeah, I like that idea. Get us. We got to string that up. Yeah, our friend Lisa White from uh, I'm sorry, uh, Lisa Smith. Um, getting my Lisa's confused. Lisa Smith from uh, Tri State Bird Rescue. She said. Uh, she she mentioned us as well. She said, um, hey, uh, I ran into my friend Kathy in Mesilla, Las Cruces, New Mexico area. She said, you got to give her a shout out. She's a friend of the show. So, Kathy, thanks for listening. We're, uh, we're very appreciative to have a listener in the Las Cruces, New Mexico area. A fine, fine state for birding as well. Yeah, I hope they have some luck. Um bringing the fires down there too um it's you know we're already in fire season here in the west and it's crazy you know usually spring was not a time for any of this to be happening but hey yeah yeah that's a pretty serious situation there yeah well um alvaro uh i know you have been doing some pretty cool things of late uh Maybe you want to tell folks about that. Uh, yeah. So I, um, I actually did some birding offshore where I wasn't birding, but I was collecting data. So that, you know, that was different, but use sort of the, the pelagic skills to, to do, uh, work to gather information about the California current system. So it's this, um, um, partnership called access and it stands for applied california current ecosystem studies so it is uh various people noaa the marine uh, sanctuaries point blue 
and um, other folks who come together and gather info on birds, whales, as well as the take readings of the water and the critters in the water. Mm-hmm. So they sample, you know, with with hoop nets and you know all of these other things trawl through and get krill samples and so it was really neat to see the the sort of uh, invertebrate work how it's done Did you get to hold a krill up close well i didn't want to mess with the data but yeah. i got to see see the stuff you know and and learn a little bit about the two species of krill and um also you know this has been going for years so you can correlate um the the krill and other you know phytoplankton or you know zooplankton that's in the water with the birds and the whales and so forth so it's it's uh the idea is to sort of track and also um even allow predictions to happen which is um going to be very important with things like crab crabbing you know we have an issue with with whales getting tangled in crab gear as well as you know turtles you know the uh the leatherbacks and so tracking and knowing where the animals are also in which conditions they're around so when do they leave for the winter when do they arrive in the spring that's all changing just like with birds you know that we're seeing these um changes in arrival and departure times um humpback whales are actually arriving and leaving at different times than they historically did and Hmm. it's causing sort of issues but the cool thing is you know you go out and it's so different to do a a research type cruise where you have very specific protocols as to observation like you can only watch a quadrant of the ocean so it's like a little forward you know sort of a 90 degree angle forward and to the side and then you also so the, the census protocol is that you only are looking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then your own. You can only count things that are two hundred meters away or less, <laughs> and then you divide them up into two zones to get density. Right. So if you know the area you're sampling, so you know it's a little um, um, two hundred meter sort of um, quarter of a circle, then you know how many birds per, you know. Um, what you know body of water you're seeing etc so it's all standardized and it's it's really wild to sort of you know you're watching an albatross on the other side or you know like a lazan albatross mm-hmm. or something fly by and you're like well that's not on survey but there it is you yeah know, i was gonna say what are you doing like yeah. the hawaiian petrels cruising yeah. by and you're like oh no i can't look at that you know you know you you still look at it but yeah. you got to keep you know with your your census protocol and the the cool thing is that at times, it's so fast, uh, you know, so much is going on, and you have to call out what's happening. That it's like a it's like a video game. So when you have to call out birds that are sitting or flying, and when they're flying, which direction they're flying in. So like the the degree, you know, sort of um, direction coordinates, and so you you you're you're just calling out like comma mer three, you know, flying three sixty, you know. Um, commoner two, uh, zone one flying, and then it's and and it's like things are going at such a s- pace that you're stacking things up in your brain that you have to call out, and it's really kind of like fun. <laughs> sort of like it really is like a it's it's difficult if you, if you had to sort of think about what you're seeing. Like I'm, I'm basically not not 
using the binoculars because everything's within 200 meters so you can id it but um it was it was wild then you have to stop whenever a, a marine mammal scene and then you have to start write write it all down and it was it was so cool for me to be just sort of thrust into, into a completely different situation of observation you know and then and then just uh use sort of the birding know-how to to you know um help out and and it's cool that the info then goes to to do you know sort of good work with it and um and you know a lot, some of it's um it's like private it's a you know federal and private kind of thing going on like kind of cool partnership so and awesome boat you know so that that was was this the catamaran you were telling me about? Was this catamaran? Yeah, the Fulmar. Yeah, Fulmar. Well, what a great name! My dad had a license plate Fulmar once way back when, but this sounds like a better yeah. Fulmar. Yeah. It's it was cool, and then you know we did see you know between points when we were moving from one place to the other, a, a Hawaiian petrel did fly by, Ooh. which was very cool. And four Lazan albatrosses, I think we saw during the entire time, and blue whale, humpback whales. Doll's porpoise. Do you have time to photograph anything or, or do you have to, oh, yeah. yeah. You got to be ready. You got to be ready, you know, but, and usually on survey, it's usually between surveys that some of the other stuff happens. So you can photograph a lot of stuff then. So at that point, you're just off, you're, you're waiting to get to the next spot where you start your protocol. So, um, it, yeah, I was, I thought it was great. And I'm, 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 I just think it's so great that, that we fund this kind of work, you know, I think we should fund more of it in different parts of the world too. You know, I mean, try to get this kind of data for some of the other current systems would be amazing. Um, but you know, you can only hope one day. Did they have those big eye binoculars on board? Did you get, did you get to try those? Yeah, no. Okay. No, no. Um, no, they, they do have for the, for the marine mammals, you know, they, they, um, there's a binoculars that have, the, sort of the angle distance, what they call reticles to actually figure out how far away something is mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, gain sort of more detail on densities of whales and so forth by assessing how far away it is from the boat, um, that kind of thing. So that was cool. I was really, we were weathered out a few days, but we got out enough to do a substantial amount of work between Monterey Bay and, and here Half Moon Bay. So, so it's cool. Blue whale was uh, pretty close, or uh, it was it was not that close, but it was you know early. They're sort of arriving now. I mean, we they really peak for us like August September. So I still need a good blue whale experience. I've kind of like seen yeah, them really. in the distance, glowing under the water, but like haven't really haven't really had the proper blue whale experience. I got to do that. Oh yeah. Some years they're all over the place here, believe it or not. Yeah. Be common. Not every year, but some years. So, yeah. And humpbacks are now just really common. I mean, they've become more, much more abundant over the last 20 years. So it's, uh, that's cool to see. Oh, and we did see a couple of killer whales, but in a distance, we, we couldn't get close to them. So, so that's, that was cool. Marcus, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was my spring. No warblers. Yeah. <laughs> I missed all the warblers. Yeah. You may, you might have the redneck phalaropes out there. We got the warblers here, man. 
get the warblers here. I still need a bunch of warblers um, that, you know, always try to try to rack, you know, I like to get them for the year, you know, see the, see as many as I can. And uh, I've had a couple nice outings where saw 15, 16, 17 species of warblers, but um, there's a bunch I haven't seen yet. Um, I did have one kind of cool experience recently that was a surprise to me. I was walking along in the woods and I heard an Eastern towhee, which is, you know, fairly common bird around here. And I was like, man, this thing's like right next to me. I'm not sure why I can't see it. <clears throat> and finally I kind of, I was like, oh, here it is. You know, I got it. And, and I was like, so close, you know, I'm just going to check him out. And as soon as I'm, I put my binocs on him, he started doing a blue jay call, like a perfect blue jay. And then he proceeded to go back to the toey, the upslurred like Surrey call. And then he'd do the Jay, you know, the blue Jay, the Jay call. And then he just hmm. was alternating between the blue Jay and the toey call for like several minutes. I just sat there and I was like, oh my God, that is so cool. <laughs> and apparently it's a known thing. Eastern toeys imitate. Um, I don't know if it's really imitate. I suspect they imprint on these, these things, um, and that they just have kind of incorporate them into their, their songs early. Alvaro, I'd be interested on your take, but, um, they, I think, I think yellow-billed cuckoo was another one that they do. And maybe, I can't remember if it was Scarlet Tanager. It was another fairly common songbird, um, that they are known to have there's a paper about them incorporating these elements into their song but i was not prepared for it and then a friend of mine jeff sent me another recording that he did i think last year of a eastern toey also with doing a, a blue jay um anyway knocked my socks off i wasn't prepared for it but thought it was pretty cool i can't imagine spotted toeys doing that but maybe they do I don't know. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if it's an Eastern toey thing only. Yeah. I imagine it's not really mimicry, you know, but like just something they picked up, but maybe it is. Not sure. Well, I mean, I guess you'd have to define what you mean by mimicry. If they're imitating a call that they're picking up, they are mimicking it, right? Yeah. They're thinking about the intent. Yes. So whether it's, it's meant to do something that is different than just increasing the repertoire of the song well it was interesting to me that it started doing that when i started looking at it and i almost wonder if it was like an alarm you know like like you know a little bit like all right this this you know you know how birds if you're just walking by they don't really care but if you stop and look at them they don't like that a lot of the time mm -hmm. yeah people don't like that either <laughs> You stop and look at them. And yeah. like, hey, man, what are you looking at? It's true. Learned that one the hard way. Yeah. But uh, I kind of wonder if that was an element and why it switched to that song. But, or maybe I just wasn't hearing the Blue Jay until, you know, I knew like the Blue Jay was there, but, you know, I was just like, oh, there's a Blue Jay calling someplace. There's sort of a kind of mimicry that's a deceptive um, type mimicry, might actually go under that 
term aggressive mimicry. And it is similar to the Jays uh, that that do hawk sounds and some of the Orioles that also will do sounds of raptors to try to sort of scare away other smaller birds from resources or from areas. When you wonder if it could be kind of similar to that. So if, if it was feeling sort of a little threatened. Right. Like the shrike tanagers in, in the neotropics yeah. that like do alarm calls for raptors and stuff, scare everything away. Yeah. And then they swoop in and get the worm or what have you. Yeah. But you'd, it has to be a mimicked, uh, voice right like not a not just a loud kind of thing it has to be mimicry of something else mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so then you yeah it could be something like that perhaps and it's just not as common i mean orioles some orioles will do that and it's not that common but um like neotropical species of orioles yet it it happens enough that people have recorded it so Maybe it's that. I don't know. So there is an intent to actually deceive before it would be a kind of mimicry rather than just, hey, I learned this, you know, learned this whole thing by accident kind of thing, you know? Yeah, that's kind of what I was, I've been wrestling with. Um, Like, you know, it's, it happens with other birds. Like I remember my dad telling me recently about a yellow throat, a common yellow throat that he had doing a perfect pine warbler song. And you just figure it just imprinted on the wrong song, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a curious, curious thing. I, I recorded a common yellow throat once doing a bunting and weirdly enough, it seemed, it sounded like an indigo bunting rather than a lazuli bunting. So. <laughs> And it was in California, so that was odd. <laughs> it's a very confused yellow throat. Yeah, really. I know. <laughs> and it, it was a yellow throat too. I mean, so yellow throats might have a tendency to sort of learn wrong things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, that's weird. These are the things. So you know, you've been burning what, like decades, and this is the first time you hear this. Isn't that amazing? Like, yeah, that's what's cool about just being out there. You, who knows what's going to happen? It could be a common bird that suddenly like is now. Now you'll never see an eastern towhee and think the same thing that you thought before. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, hey. Yeah, it's like discover. It was a whole different kind of discovery. You know, you know, it's like that's what it is. One of the things you love about birding is you can just all of a sudden a bird that you think you know really, really well will just you know, shock you with something like that. Pretty, pretty fun. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah, man. But so Cerulean Warbler, is that one you're missing? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I thought so. Yeah. Look at this. This is the joy that he derives out of this. It's great. (laughs) I bet Molly's gotten a Cerulean Warbler this spring. Yeah. That's not one that you have to work for very hard. Around here, he lives with them. That's right. Yeah. If it's any consolation, I don't have one nesting immediately outside my house. Yeah, that's only so that helps. It's only a rough, so rough year for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you have to drive a couple miles to get your gold wings and cerulean's. I really feel for you, Molly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> West Virginia, it's just an ugly, desolate place. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still remember. One of the best mornings I ever had for songbird photography was that New River um, Birding Festival. I went out my last, I think it was the morning after the festival ended, I went out just on my own and just got 
some of the best photos of warblers I've ever managed. It's just such a great place for warblers. Yeah, I the birding really isn't as easy around here in some ways. Like, I mean, West Virginia is extremely wooded, so you don't have any sort of like islands or pockets. Uh, and it's very hilly, so uh, it's not always easy to to get in places that have good vantage points for birds. But if you can get along ridgelines, uh, warblers are fantastic here. I always try to pitch West Virginia as like a, a June destination for people so they can come for the breeding birds and mm-hmm. see all that. Cause it's, it's pretty cool. You can hit a lot of elevations really easily too. Yeah. No, it's super, super part of the country. Yeah. I think, you know, with thinking about like both, uh, the biggest week and Peely, you can, both of them, you could do like your migratory watching and then head either out to like towards Michigan or in uh, on the you know Ontario side just a little farther north and you you just get right into the breeding areas pretty quickly for a lot of stuff including things that are usually kind of prizes in in the migration like ceruleans and and like mm-hmm. golden wing warblers um morning warblers you know they become kind of moderately they're actually easier to find in the breeding grounds than they are in migration in some in some spots mm-hmm. you know black bill cuckoos things like that that are are, are pretty cool to see so uh, people not don't always think of mixing that sort of migrants with with arriving breeders but you're at that latitude up there that you're you're really in you know you can you could even go up to see Curlin's warblers breeding, of course. Oh, yeah. It's not that far, really. No, it's not. Right. Well, you have to swing farther enough south to get, uh, what, hooded and swainsons and a couple of those. Like, maybe West Virginia. There you go. So, throw that into into your little (laughs) loop, and and then it's perfect. Yeah. I I think Maryland and Pennsylvania are neck and neck for the most number of breeding species of warblers. And they're, they're both right around 25. Um, cause I think they get, and, and Molly's looking at me like West Virginia is close. I'm, thinking, I'm not, counting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's West Virginia is right in that same zone. Um, mm-hmm. so it could be, I would, could be too. I would imagine Ontario has got to be pretty much up there. Yeah. I mean, Southern Ontario, you do get like, there's even like Louisiana water thrushes and Kentuckys, oh, yeah. I think, and Prothonotaries. Yeah. Yeah. Prothos are, are, are there. It's shocking to a lot of folks, how many of those warblers barely get into Southern Ontario. But, but you know, you have all the Northern ones too, right? You've got, in Ontario, you've got Connecticut breeding. You've got palm warblers, Cape Mays, all that. All the northern stuff is breeding too. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge area; it's bigger than Texas, you know. So, so, yeah, we can't. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not fair to compare a huge, amazing province with one of these tiny little American states. Yeah, I was I was referring to the states <laughs> rather than the province because because of that uh, in part. Yes. Like, right, right. Comparing all of Canada to Delaware, practically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I just. But on the other hand, you know, like I was seeing some map the other day, like some weather thing or somebody was posting and, and it was all like Michigan is really hot. And there was like Canada was black. It was blacked out like it didn't exist. So some, you know, somebody's got to got to be there putting in some. uh 
you know, kudos to the the fact that the world does not end at the border. <laughs> true. It's true. Yeah. No, there's so much to see. Yeah. Up in Canada, there's a lot, a ton of birding to be done up there. And I do think Americans don't think about it enough, really. Um, so much, so much to be seen. I've, uh, I'm guilty of that myself. A lot more I'd like to see. I think, um, you know, re- regarding migration too, one, one kind of thing that I thought uh, from our West perspective has been a little like i'm am i just paying more attention or what but this year's been really weird i've I've been offshore and there's been sort of a lot of wind and funny weather um like lots of wind um just like in the east and people have been reporting like western tanagers out just in numbers beyond what's what's the norm in most springs as if the maybe the migration's been more constricted in time or just more dense in in some for some reason people who usually don't get them in their yards or say oh there's western tanagers in my yard and so forth and and also i've noticed this year that that some of the westerners are using birdcast you know mm-hmm. the, the bird migration forecasting system which usually is we've always thought that's kind of an east coast thing you know because we don't get the the clear migration moves right the peaks that we, we do as much peaks. yeah big movements um, are not as obvious but, but this this year it's been like people have been using it and it's been predicting pretty well in some places like numbers of 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 these common migrants like western tanagers and so forth so I, it's it's interesting that something odd is happening out west like the migration's a little weird this year and uh be, be interesting to sort of see later, you know, an assessment by somebody of what actually happened. But um, wind is the main thing that I, I kind of think is, I, I'm noticing um, just a strong, strong sort of pressure gradients. So maybe that's holding things back. And then when the wind releases, you know, then these big sort of dense movements are happening. That usually is not the case. It's much more sort of slow and slow steady you know, trickle and then lately you've been getting the yeah. floodgates kind of open and these bursts of birds yeah yeah but interesting now i'm gonna have to you know another thing to look up birdcast you know yeah i love birdcast <laughs> I, ch- I check it not every day but i check it. you know i'm sure molly does yeah. too living in the east you you kind of like you know you're waiting for the next big wave of migrants and uh that is often the first place in Philly. It seems like we often have a little bit of lag where the, the day after the big movement, the morning after the, the big rush of birds can be, I don't know if birds are still moving around a lot, but to me, it often feels like the day after that is when you see more birds. Uh, birds have kind of settled in, maybe picked their pockets where they're going to hang out before they refuel and keep going. A lot of times the big migration days the next day, they can be good, but they can be just kind of like, eh, you know, okay. Um, but yeah. I follow it pretty closely here. Uh, Birdcast is a great tool for for really anybody in the country looking to try to figure out how many birds are moving in their region. Yeah. I think it's been within the past year or so that they've updated the dashboard. So there's a lot more like you can enter your county and get a lot more 
easy to see information. Um, my mom is a, a fifth grade math teacher and she's been using it as her examples in her math lessons and using all that data. So that's been fun to follow. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, wow. So that is pretty cool. We do have two different migratory systems in North America. The West and the East function differently. Um, and uh, You guys get a lot of mountains out there. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, the, the latitudinal um, sort of uh, expanse that, that birds will nest in is much greater in the West. So our southernmost orange crowns and Wilson's warblers and our northernmost are, it's a huge gradient. But in the, in the East, it's much more restricted. So things kind of go in, in a schedule that, that's, that's um, more predictable or at least not or quicker than, than the kind of more segmented. Yeah. Yeah. So we can get, we can get migratory Wilsons going by at a time that the local Wilsons are already fledging. So the Alaska birds are going so late compared to the local birds that, that you have like this sort of, you know, almost like a, well, it's a leapfrog pattern. Mm -hmm. One's like leapfrogging over the other. But hmm, yeah. it's just uh, it's really different, um, and and also they they're not wintering as far south, right? So on average, they're wintering in Mexico or up to Guatemala. They're not going down to Costa Rica or South America like a lot of the eastern birds. So it's um, it is like two different systems, and if you start thinking about it that way, it, it kind of starts making more sense in a in a way. At least for me, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, your your yellow warblers and Wilson's warblers, they're just kind of, you know, an orange crowns. They just migrate a little bit, man. You come east, you'll see some real Wilson's warblers and orange crowned warblers and yellow warblers. We got, you know, they know they know how to move over here. But our our Wilson's warblers and our orange crowned warblers are better looking. Mm, that's beauty's in the eye of the beholder, man. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Brighter colors. I like the dusky. I like the dusky olive of our orange crown warblers here. You know, it's it's a subtle beauty. It's a subtle beauty. Yeah, yeah the ones that look like they've worked a little harder in their migration That's route. Right. Yeah, they, they're a little work wear and tear. <laughs> yeah, the wear and tear. You know, it adds up. You can't be this brilliant lime green thing like they got out there in California if you got to move like ours. Yeah. <laughs> Food for thought. Uh, well, you know, we also get the eastern ones out here, so yeah, you know, here you that's go. the other thing. So we get the West Andes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, guys, we are coming up on the hour here. Um, I did want to. How did yeah, that happen? Yeah, how did it happen? Just kind of flew by. I did have um, a shout out I wanted to give to friend Jordan Rudder who is the director of public relations at ABC, the American Bird Conservancy. And she was just named the inaugural winner of the Wilson Ornithological Society Early Professional Avian Conservation and Community Impact Award. Congrats, Jordan. Very cool and uh, much deserved. Uh, so wanted to say um, way to go on that. Very, very, uh, very awesome. And I also wanted to say thanks to my buddy, Tony, who hooked me up with some friends that were able to get me some native plants, native plants um, that I have planted in the yard. Got viburnum, monarda, cardinal flower, 
Eastern Columbine. I got a swamp magnolia wow. here. Yeah, before you know it, the birds are going to be flocking into the yard here. They're going to be feeding like crazy. Because if I'm being honest, this, this spring migration in the yard here has been a little tepid. Not many warblers so far in the yard. So I am hoping that fall is going to be is going to be where it's at. I'm going to put in a wall of goldenrod. I am stoked, man. But thanks, Tony, for getting me started on that. So, um, yeah, Molly, how about you? Any any shout outs or tell us what you're excited about that you got coming up? Oh, well, we've been working on native plant stuff, too. Uh, so that's really cool. We could talk a lot more about that. But we're doing some plantings and pulling a few invasives and getting things situated in our uh, in our property that we've been working on since fall. But I'll save that for another episode. Uh, shout outs. I want to give a shout out to uh, Katie Fallon, another West Virginia native who just won the primary for uh, she's running for the West Virginia House of Delegates. Oh, wow. I didn't and know she, she was unopposed. She, yeah. Yeah. Well, so she's unopposed. She was the only Democrat right. on the, the ticket for that. So she's through to the next round, which wasn't a huge surprise. Um, but I think we're going to have her on the podcast soon. Yeah. It'll be really fun to talk about everything she's done so we'll, we'll save that for an intro but she's she really has done a little bit of everything yeah dynamic and, uh, congratulations to her yeah yeah fantastic yeah i i think i'll mention one other thing this is a little different uh, but we have a sponsor for the podcast koa and koa is running yeah. a a big promotion on their scopes on their uh 880 scopes which you might both use i use mm-hmm. the 770 uh, they're $500 off, and oh, wow. I, I think that's the biggest sale they've ever had on them. So if you're looking for a scope, all of us here can can recommend Koa Optics and yeah. Uh, yeah, and check them out where you buy your optics over the next few weeks. That sale's running. Yeah, really good. Uh, excellent optically and uh, tough to beat on the price, especially if you knock off 500 bucks. That's awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, for digiscoping, um, just perfect scopes, you know, in, in terms of the quality and, and also, you know, people are always like lock, looking for value, right? Like, you know, getting the biggest bang for your buck kind of thing. I think Koa is the, the best value in terms of quality and, and not as pricey as some of the others. So, yeah. I love them. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Cool. Alvaro, how about you? Any uh, shout outs, stuff you're excited about? You want to tell the good people? God, I'm, um, boy, um, I think I've talked about all the cool stuff I've been up to. I'm actually putting together today. I was putting together a, a kind of mini course on identifying dowagers. Hopefully that'll be done soon. I've been kind of quiet on the birding your best, uh, life front. So that's, uh, that's the next thing. A little, little course on dowagers and how to identify them. People have been asking for that for a while. So. If you're into that, <laughs> it's, you know, hopefully it won't, it won't be too difficult. Maybe I'll run it by you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's a challenging group to be sure. You, you're just going long build, short bill. You're not throwing in the Asiatic, I trust. Right. Yeah. yeah. But just, just the North American ones, but trying to sort of divide it up into, it's sort of the basics and, and, and more about habitat and migration and, structure and then get into sort of the plumages and uh and try to sort of really look at like um aspects of the the fine detail of the plumage sometimes that you know sort of that 
maybe almost like scope craft or digiscoping to try to get those details and learn them that way. And they eventually put together the big picture once you know the little bits. That's, um, I think, how they work. They're kind of a weird uh, pair. They're, you know, you can't just like kind of eyeball them and say, oh, yeah, it's this or that. You ba- you have to pay attention. Yeah, so. certainly helps if they're vocalizing. But I do. F- I, it's one of those groups where sometimes I find them easy. And other times I'm like, I have no idea which one I'm looking at. It's just it very much depends on the situation for me. But uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, that is good stuff, guys. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the feedback. We always appreciate the questions. Keep them coming. And, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you again here at Lifeless with another episode coming soon. Take care, everybody. Take care, guys. Bye, Bye everyone. <laughs>